Welcome back to the 68th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including talking about chat GBT and more generally the dangers of AI moving forward, not in a Terminator sense, but in a more practical sense. Then we're also going to be talking about how the governed in America aren't necessarily happy, but it's a little bit more complicated than that, and I think the author has a genuine misunderstanding of what America is all about. And then uh, another story talking about the ceiling for democratic media and how they can actually fix their situation and gain more of a foothold in rural America. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive. I'm ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So, we've discussed AI before on the podcast, and we acknowledge then, and I still do acknowledge, that it can be a very powerful tool. It can be used to create all sorts of things. I mean, for instance, it's used to create the thumbnails or at least the images that you probably see in the thumbnails of the YouTube videos of this podcast. But it could also be very dangerous in the wrong hands. And if it's used unethically, that really, really could be damaging, especially in the case of ChatGBT. So how do we ensure that we are not programming our biases into these AI programs? And secondly, how do we ensure we can trust the information that these AI programs give us? In an age of AI, these are important questions that we need to at least consider before we dive in headfirst, at least in my opinion. All right, let's jump to our first article. This one comes from Forbes. Can the generative AI ChatGPT brand keep going strong, or will it fizzle out as AI ethics and AI law? So, I know that that headline doesn't necessarily speak directly to ChatGPT and talking about some of the issues with it. It does bring up the ethics and law towards the end there. But this author really uses this 40-minute article, and yes, gosh, it was a long article, to talk about, will ChatGBT survive? Is there a good business model here? But he does stop every once in a while to really highlight a few points and to show or at least talk to people that don't necessarily understand ChatGBT like myself or at least didn't understand everything about the basics and tell us, well, there are some things here that we do need to be concerned about. So I have intentionally not really touched the chat GBT trend for a while. And it's because I really didn't want to get involved, just jump on a trend and just do it when there's nothing important about it, or at least there's no angle that I can come at it from that I think is worth discussing. And I wanted to see if it would stick around. And it was most definitely, you know, in the mainstream for probably a month and it's faded a little bit now. But I still think there is important conversation to be had about it, even if it's not as popular or not as dominant in the news cycle or the trend cycle as it once was. Quote, one final forewarning for now. 
Whatever you see or read in a generative AI response that seems to be conveyed as purely factual, dates, places, people, etc., make sure to remain skeptical and willing to double-check what you see. Yes, dates can be coincided, places can be made up, and elements that we usually expect to be above approach are all subjects to suspicion. Do not believe what you read and keep a skeptical eye when examining any generative AI essays or outputs. If a generative AI app tells you that Abraham Lincoln flew around the country in his own private jet, you would undoubtedly know that this was markedly false. Unfortunately, some people might not realize that jets weren't around in his day, or they might know but fail to notice that the essay makes this brazen and outrageous false claim, end quote. And this is just one issue, among, among many others, that the author does highlight throughout this article. But the, the conception here, and what he's trying to point out, and what he's getting at a little bit earlier, is that we are saying that, okay, this is a computer program that has taken data from so many different locations it is obviously able to put together a factually accurate statement. It is obviously able to bring together all the factual information, and we should trust it because of it. You know, it's smarter than us, or even if it's not smarter than us, it's a computer program that's programmed to do something specific, get information about a person and put it together. But then we have to really take a step back. We have to say, okay, no, these AI programs don't have all the answers because even if that is what they're programmed to do, get the answers, they have no idea if it's factual. They have no idea as to what the true facts are because at the end of the day, they are just going to these locations wherever they're programmed to go, getting the information, and then finding another place where that information may be, and then synthesizing it into a new essay. They are not able... At this point, maybe in the future they will be, but they're not able at this point to make a judgment call to know whether this information that they are gathering is completely accurate. And with this fact also comes the necessary discussion about bias. The creators of these AI programs could very well only be using one side's websites or essays to train this AI. So if they only send it off to certain websites, they say, no, you can go and read MSNBC, you can go read Fox News, but you can't go read The Daily Wire, or you can't go read Secular Talk transcripts, both of which are a little bit further out on the right and the left. You can't do any of that. You have to stay in the mainstream. Then the AI is only going to have narratives, information that is happening in the mainstream. And I'm not saying that the authors are bad for doing that because maybe, or sorry, the creators, the ones who made the code, maybe that's all they read. Maybe they don't know about Secular Talk or The Daily Wire. Or maybe they think they're so far out there that we want a more moderate mainstream point of view. That's fine. But then when this information is relayed to people on the other side asking questions, they're not told oh, all of this information came from these two places or this information, this part of the quote came from this place. No, because the generative AI is creating something new, but it still has its training set baked into it because all it really is doing is analyzing words, patterns, and then predicting what will come next based on what it's seen in the past. 
So it's really just reliving its training set in a little bit more of a creative way. So if the training set is all one thing or another, then that is inherently a bias that the AI doesn't know it has, and it is not informing the other people on the other side of what's coming out and where it's coming from. That is dangerous because people will take it as factual if we're not more skeptical, if we're not willing to say, okay, I understand this is a very powerful tool. It is very good. But that doesn't mean that it has all the answers. It doesn't mean that it is always correct. So I think there's actually an even better example for the people who are like, wow, why did you go with MSNBC, Fox News, all this? Think of it this way. If you only fed an AI program, papers and essays written by Karl Marx in its training set, anything he's ever written, I'm not saying just his large manifestos, the two main ones. I'm saying if you feed him anything Karl Marx has ever written, then all it would know is Karl Marx and his perception of socioeconomic problems. So if you were to ask how do we solve this issue in the markets, it would be a much different answer than if you were to train this robot completely off of Adam Smith or Michael Friedman so that is the thing that we need to keep in perspective. Not only is this trained in a very specific way with very specific data that we don't know what it is for the most part, but it is only as good as the information that it is copying or at least the information that it is using to create or make its new version, its new essay, its new generated wording. So at the end of the day, it's just recreating what we've done in the past. I don't necessarily think that if you go back through all of history, everything that's written on the internet, every single person has said something that is completely 100% factually accurate. Yes, I'm being funny because no one has. It is not the case. If you go across the internet, you will find things that are wrong everywhere. So how could we expect a AI program that is meant to take all that information and spit it back out to us to give us an accurate picture of the events that unfolded or the pe uh, essay that is 100% factually correct about Abraham Lincoln and his life? We can't. So that's just something we need to keep in mind. Quote, generative AI is pre-trained. It makes use of a complex mathematical and computational formula that has been set up by examining patterns in written words and stories across the web. As a result of examining thousands and millions of written pages, the AI can spew out new essays and stories that are a mismatch of what was found. By adding the various problemistic functionalities, the resulting text is pretty much unique in comparison to what has been used in the training set, end quote. So, inherently trusting the AI program to give you the facts is not only hard to trust, but it can also be dangerous. Because at the end of the day, if it's just using information from one website, then presenting that opinion article as fact. And then, you know what happens? Sometime in the future, people are going to, if they trust it so much inherently, that's only getting the facts, 
It goes to an opinion piece. It reads in and says, okay, this is the truth. I'm going to relay this information to the person asking this random question. And then the person gets the reply to the random question from ChatGPT, and they said, well, this is an AI program. It's been trained on all the data. It knows what's right and wrong. I'm not saying this is true. I'm not saying somebody's this ignorant, but let's just assume that's the case. Then they use it. They quote it in their reporting. Or it, it doesn't even have to be ChatGPT. It could be another program that is said to ensure that it only gives you the correct information. And then we rely on that. They say, oh, well, this was fact-checked by uh, ChatGPT or ChatCorrect. We'll just call it ChatCorrect in this theoretical situation. And then they didn't realize that where it's grabbing that information from is an opinion article. So now that person's opinion has been used as a factual backing up of some argument. This is how dangerous it can be if we are over-reliant, if we are over-trusting of AI programs. And to be clear, I think there is a good way to go about it. I think there's a great way to use this technology. And I I don't want to be all doom and gloom, so I'll end on this. So I want you to take a step back and really think about what I've been saying, which is it is using a training set, a whole bunch of training information to relay information back to the people. So what if we could use this in a way to create an interactive back and forth between students and the AI robot. And what we do is we have a training version where we put in any author. So let's say Albert Camus, uh, a very dark philosopher. And we put in all of his works. And then instead of putting out a whole bunch of random information, pulling from a whole bunch of random information, it pulls only from the stuff that he has written himself and maybe an autobiography, just to help the process along just a little bit. And then the student can ask them any question about some of the books, any question about Camus, and it will give a response that isn't too bland, isn't too boring, can't be found on Wikipedia, is engaging, but also doesn't necessarily give you all the answers and doesn't tell you how he was going about certain processes and doesn't pretend to know everything about him. But still, it can be an informative tool where it's, oh, what was his birthday? Well, my training data says it was his birthday here, and they'll dress it up a little bit. Camus was born in France and blah, blah, blah. Or what would he say about nihilism or realism? And then maybe the AI has gone through his works and seen a few places where it's mentioned and then tries to bring it together with this nice little synthesis saying, well, these few places he talks about realism in this way. And I think it could be a great training tool for kids because it's interactive. It forces you to ask questions that are actually good questions rather than what's just his birthday. It asks you, make you ask creative questions while also informing you. And maybe you don't want to sit down and read the autobiography yourself and sit there for five hours and read the book. But no, you could probably get lost for five hours asking an AI question, having it throw back essays or written sentences to you, and then you kind of build a conversation from there. I think that could be very interesting. I think it could be a very good tool for learning, especially in the future where kids are probably going to learn on their tablets anyway, because that's the way we're headed. But that's just my opinion. And I, I think that I wanted to give it a positive spin there at the end because I do think this technology is amazing and I think that constantly moving forward and improving this technology 
will, as I said before, create more tools for creatives, even people that are less creative, to use, to interact, to make something that is worthwhile and maybe add value to society in that way. So I think it's an important thing, but I do think that we need to be skeptical, like the author points out. All right, let's jump to our second article. This one comes from Daily Koss. The governed in America aren't getting the happiness they deserve. Quote, We were told by the Declaration of Independence that our nation was formed to provide every citizen with the basics of what government can and should provide. Quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with a certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, government, governments are instituted among men, derived, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, end quote. And then the author goes on to say, the governed in today's America, however, aren't getting the happiness they want, or even frankly, that they need. And let's just take a step back. The author actually disproves their own premise within the first paragraph, and and here's how. The Declaration of Independence does not say that the government is responsible for your happiness. There's not a one-to-one connection there. It is not in a place, it is not in place to, in order to cater to your every want, your every need, and it is meant to provide freedom, liberty, to ensure that you can pursue happiness. Like I said, it's it's not the like the government sitting there saying, "Oh, you know what? Catherine, I am going to give you that new Maserati you wanted cuz that's going to make you happy." You know, that is my job as a government to make sure that you are living a life that makes you happy. Now, they don't have first off, they don't have time for that. But second off, why should the government do that? Why should the government cater to everyone's needs? The point of a government, and this is obviously my opinion or at least my worldview that I've developed over years, but a lot of people have different opinions about what government is for. What I believe government is for at the end of the day is security and law and order. It protects you from outside forces, and then it protects you from inside troublemakers, maybe even monopolies, or people who try to harm you by selling terrible products or just commit crimes like murderers. It is basically the people giving up a tiny, tiny amount of their sovereignty, a tiny amount of their ability to just go and live in the woods and just deal with whatever happens and giving the government a little bit of taxes in order to say, okay, I want you to give the local area some police. I want some firemen in case my house goes up in flames. I want a justice system so if I'm wronged in any way, then I can go to the justice system and bring that other person that wronged me, who is also part of this social society, this governing body that we have both given up our a little bit of our sovereignty to be a part of, can be held responsible in the courts. So the government's job is not to maximize your happiness it's to create a system wherein you can pursue that happiness where if someone violates your rights you can hold them accountable 
and then you can move forward in a way that will hopefully bring you happiness, joy, life, prosperity, liberty, and freedom. So I think that the author kind of misses the ball there. But let's indulge the author, because further on in the article, they still have some points that should be heard out and are very crucial to a certain conversation that I think we are constantly been having for the last five years or so. But it just it's another highlighted example that I want to push back against and also endorse a little bit. I know, tricky, but I think that the author has some great points that we need to highlight, talk about, and then there are places where it falls flat. So more than seven in one Americans live in poverty in modern America. There are over 500,000 medical-based bankruptcies per year, and only 10.8% of non-government workers are in a union. So the author goes on to compare us to many other civilized nations in the West, highlighting their higher tax rates, their lower levels of poverty, healthcare bankruptcies, and so on. But, but why? Why do these countries have lower statistics, or at least lower negative statistics? And here's what the author has to say. Quote, so how did America become the outlier? Why do other countries have extensive and functioning social safety nets and wealthy people who pay their taxes, and we have neither? In a nutshell, it goes back to the Republicans on the U.S. Supreme Court legalizing political bribery by both the morbidly rich and corporations. In the 1970s, the doubling down on it with the Citizens United in 2010 as I lay out the hidden history of the Supreme Court and betrayal of America. Rich people and corporations, with the court's blessing, pay politicians to drill so many holes in our tax code that it resembles Swiss cheese. Then they use the money they save in taxes to further corrupt those same politicians to gut social security, sorry, social safety nets, end quote. And, you know, so there is obviously... It seems pretty cut and dry based on what they just said here, right? And while, yes, I agree, we most definitely have a lobbyist and corporate interest problem, but I also think there's a little bit more here that the author doesn't necessarily highlight. A lot of the examples, not all of them, France is one of the exceptions, and Canada is another exception, but most of the states that they mention in their statistics are such as New Zealand, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, and a lot of these countries have homogeneous societies. There are a lot of the same type of people there, meaning they share a lot of the same cultural values versus in the United States where we're a heterogeneous society. So it's hard to have a social cohesion and the willingness to give up some of your benefits to give to your neighbor if you don't believe that you will spend that money in a similar way, if you don't believe that, okay, if we do give this money to Jimmy down the road, he's going to go use part of it to get his life together, part of it to give to the church. Since we don't have a uniting underlying identity and code of morals, ethics, then people are less willing to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to give up some more of my money. I'm going to let them tax me a little bit more so that this other person can do better because you don't believe that they necessarily share the same values as you. And that's a small factor, of course, and I'm not trying to say it's the, a really, really important one, but I do think it is one that needs to be pointed out 
because at the end of the day, this is a lot more complicated problem than just, oh, it is corruption, lobbying, and corp- uh, corporations putting money into the system. That is a huge problem. The Supreme Court has opened up these loopholes, and I've actually, I did a podcast about this before, about how I think it's disgusting. And it's not just, let's be clear, it's not just Republicans. It was Democrats in the early 2000s that weakened it just as much when uh, Kennedy, the current Supreme Justice, sorry, the head justice at this point, was also in the minority back in the 2000s, and the Democrats also allowed for certain contributions to go to candidates. And they also, over time, ensured that people, I'm sorry, corporations were viewed as people in the eyes of the law over time. Not just Republicans, there were Democrats who agreed on that decision too. So I think at the end of the day, this is a much more complicated issue, and I think we can't just boil it down to one thing, but I do want to agree with the author when they say that the courts have opened up the ability for lobbyists to really have an outsized influence over what happens in American politics. And I'm I'm pretty much always going to call that out because I think it's BS. Even if they're lobbying for things I agree with, I don't think that their money should speak louder than the voices of the people that those congressmen, senators, appointees are meant to represent. All right, let's jump to our last story. This one comes from Raw Story. A media ceiling is about to fall in on the Democrats. And this is a, a pretty quick story, so I won't drag it along for too long. So have you ever been on a long drive? Maybe you're flipping through the radio stations and you land on a political commentary show. Nah, I mean, neither. I mean, who listens to radio anymore, right? And of course, I'm, I'm just kidding, just so we're clear. Uh, because I grew up in Northern Virginia, there were all types of political radio shows. Some conservative, some liberal, but not many progressive. Quote, on the progressive side, there are a few dozen independently owned radio stations and not one single television station that programs Democratic content. The only progressive television network in America is Free Speech TV, which has never even launched an advertising or PR campaign to tell the nation that it exists. Red states are states in large part. Red states are red in large part because their media infrastructure is exclusively Republican friendly. There's not a single progressive radio or TV station of consequence in any of these red states in America. This is the key to understanding the paradox that Thomas Frank identified with his book, What Matters? What's the Matter with Kansas? In rural areas, it is not uncommon to drive an hour just to get groceries. People listen to the radio while driving. And that one constant across every red state is a large driver of why rural America is red, end quote. So the author makes a very convincing argument in that there's actually a lot of even more conservative radio stations rising about in America, especially the Hispanic radio shows that have, are a little bit more conservative in leaning. And he's trying to highlight that this is the key time. This is the time. It's now or never to take the bull by the horns and create a more progressive radio show. And though I'm, I'm not a progressive by any means, I do agree that we cannot have one side completely dominating any form of communication. And the conservatives in my audience are probably saying, how 
dare you? But reinforcing the echo chamber is never, ever a good thing. We can't just live siloed. We can't just have information that comes from one side of the aisle because that one makes you reinforce the beliefs that you have that may be political beliefs rather than actually factual beliefs. And then it also makes the divide between the sides greater because you never hear another opinion. You're just in your silo. You're just in your echo chamber. And then you start to kind of believe what you hear that, oh, these, this certain group is coming for these certain rights, blah, blah, blah. These group wants to take away your rights, blah, blah, blah. And let's be clear, it doesn't mean it's unjustified. It doesn't mean that it's untrue. But if you keep hearing that, it ingrains it in your brain. And at some point, you're st- you stop being willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and actually listen to them because you just believe that they're trying to take this away, that there's no point to their argument. So I think that having these echo chambers is a dangerous thing. So in order to come back to the middle for everyday Americans... They need to hear all different types of messages. This is increasingly hard nowadays. But with social media in the world, I take that back. With social media in the world, it is still hard because there are these algorithms that lock us in to one point of view that suggest content that's similar to the last thing you watched so that at the end of the day, you keep watching on YouTube, you keep watching on TikTok, on Instagram. But at least in these spheres, on TikTok, on YouTube, there are creators from all different bandwidths. You have your conservatives, your progressives, your middle-of-the-road people, your anarchists, your just straight-up libertarians. And if you really put in the effort, or at least even a small amount of effort, you can find someone from the other side of the aisle. You can find somebody else's opinion, and you can push back on your own echo chamber. But with radio, that's a lot harder. That's, you know, it's really hard to get out of the echo chamber if there's only conservative commentators in some of these locations. And that's why I think this author is right when he says that we need a progressive radio show of some kind. Not just so progressives have a place to listen and enforce their echo chamber, but maybe you're scrolling through the radio stations and you come across it one day and they say something that you actually kind of agree with. You think the rationale is not too bad. And then you actually consider the opinion. You're open to the opinion rather than being constantly shut down when you hear the word progressive. And you just say, oh, no, they're wrong. They're doing this. They're doing that. Rather, you say, oh, yeah, I've I've heard some of their opinions. Some of them are out there, and I don't agree with them. But this one I do. And that allows people to come to the table and have a conversation. So... That's enough rambling about radio shows. I told you it'd be a quick one. Let's jump into our daily delight. This one comes from the Animal Rescue site. Wild Fox befriends cat in adorable viral video. So we often think of both cats and foxes as being on the shy side of the spectrum. And yes, that could be be anthropomorphizing them, but you don't necessarily see them around too much. They kind of keep to themselves. But... There is a wildlife photographer who captured something beautiful. Quote, a wildlife photographer managed to capture a sweet exchange between the two animals. And you have to see it to believe it. Turkish wildlife photographer Ali Asan Orzak, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing his name, shared a video of a cat and a fox hanging out on Instagram. And it's really something special, end quote. 
And he even got a photo of the fox play biting uh, the snow, the white as snow cat. Quote, in the video, you can see the cat come up behind the fox and fox and nuzzle the wild animal. Surprisingly, the fox didn't seem to mind one bit and took it as an invitation for a friendship, end quote. If you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or read any of the articles that I mentioned here today, there will be a link in the description below, that like and subscribe button if you're on YouTube. If you're listening on any of the other podcast platforms, yes, there's a YouTube version. And if you're watching on the YouTube version, yeah, I have it out on Spotify, Podvine, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast. We're working on Apple Podcasts. So you can listen there, download it, rather than watching this video form. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.